Welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, February 21st, we are studying John chapter 9, verses 24 to 41. In today's text, the investigation into Jesus' healing of the man born blind continues, and we learn what it means to see Jesus truly. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He is also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad as always to be on. As we get started today, Pastor Heidi, remind us where we are. We're in the middle of one long account for the sake of time, though we split it into two. Help us remember what's been going on that leads up to the text we're going to look at today. Right. So the the immediate context of this is uh, a man who had been born blind and Jesus heals him by, you know, basically creating mud and anointing his eyes with the mud, telling him to go wash and he comes back seeing. Uh, the, the problem with this is that it causes quite a stir uh, among the, the, the Pharisees and the Jews because they're just not sure, you know, what's going on here or what has just happened. And so we, we have this back and forth, especially between the man himself who has been healed and those who are asking him all these questions, you know, what it is exactly that has happened. And I think, and we're, what we're getting here in the second half, starting at verse 24, is the conclusion of that back and forth of this debate between them and also uh, Jesus finally coming back to the man and uh, we see how he'll interact with him. So, I mean, that's the immediate context, right? Right. We're in the middle of an account. And again, for the sake of time, we split it into two, but this is just simply picking up right where we left off yesterday. We're in the middle of this investigation. Before we read the rest of the investigation, talk a little bit more about the larger context. Even going back into chapter 8, Jesus has said he's the light of the world, and we've seen themes of light and darkness elsewhere in the Gospel of John. How does that affect the way we understand what's happening in chapter 9? Right. I mean, what we're seeing here, especially in the middle of the Gospel of John, is kind of this long ongoing kind of uh, question, you know, who is Jesus? What is it that he's come to do? Because he says very clear things about himself. Like you mentioned, I am the light of the world. You know, the truth will set you free. All of these sorts of things. And yet we have this constant opposition from the Jews and from the Pharisees. And basically it's trying to, I think what John is trying to do here, especially through the middle part of this, is to show us who Jesus is, and especially in opposition to those who are against him, those who received him not, as John says in the uh, first uh, chapter of his gospel. Hmm. 
So again, this is a, an actual miracle or a sign that Jesus does. That's the language John uses is Jesus signs. He truly does heal this man born blind. But how does that then serve as an, more than that, that we're going to to see? And every time I use the word see during this study, I feel like I'm saying a pun, but I'm really not. How does that help us see Jesus truly? I mean, how does this matter of physical blindness and spiritual blindness, how do those two things go together in this text? Right. Well, the the miracles themselves, and I think it's in John also where he says, you know, if you won't believe my words, believe the miracles, believe the works that I do. Uh, but the, the point is, is that he's doing all of these miracles as a way of pointing towards himself to say, this is who I am. This is what I have come to do, that sort of thing. And so by seeing, seeing, as you said, uh, the miracle, we see Jesus for who he is. But if we refuse to accept the miracle as the Jews are doing, then we are spiritually blind. We are not seeing Jesus rightly, even though the miracle's right there in front of us. Hmm. Yeah, what I suppose is different about this sign, as opposed to, say, the feeding of the 5,000 then, is after the feeding of the 5,000, they want to make Jesus king mm -hmm. because, hey, he can feed us all the time. And of course, Jesus has to correct that misunderstanding, and he does that through the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6. But here, you know, he's done this sign, he's healed the man born blind. And the reaction isn't a whole bunch of people lining up to be healed, but it's rather this investigation. So I, I, I don't know, there's just two different ways to, to fall into unbelief from the signs, I suppose. On the one hand, you could see it as a sign and like, oh, I want him to do this all the time and miss the fullness of everything he comes to give. On the other hand, here, it's more like, hey, did you really do this? And, and how did you do it? And are you legitimate or not? It's it's striking to see just more than one way to not believe in Jesus after you've seen a sign. Right. I think with the first one, it's a misunderstanding of the purpose of the miracle. Um, because in that case, you're saying, oh, he can multiply bread. Well, he should keep multiplying bread because how great this would be. Whereas it missed the point of showing that, you know, he is the Lord who can provide all things, you know, that he is the one who has come to give all these things. Whereas like with this one, you know, there's this disbelief, I mean, from a hardness of heart that basically says, we don't want to believe what has just happened. There must be some other explanation. So yeah, I mean, there are multiple ways in which to deny the reality of the miracle. And yet we still have to face the reality of what it is, which is why I think this chapter is so interesting, because if you think about it, Jesus isn't actually in most of this chapter. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> They're talking yeah, about yeah. him, but he's, he only comes in at the beginning and at the end. Yeah, that's right. He, he left after the miracle took place, and then it's been a conversation about, well, who did this? How did he do this? We've been now thinking about, is this man really the one who was born blind? Is it someone else? And so we've, we've heard a variety of testimony so far. The neighbors have asked the man what he thought about it. The Pharisees have asked the man what he thought about it. They didn't like his first answer, so they said, well, let's try his parents. And that's whose testimony we've most recently heard. As we, we left off the text yesterday, we learned that, in fact, this man was born blind. He is this son of these two parents. They know that he can see now, but they're not willing to say anything about how that's happened or who did it. 
and they they've thrown the question back on the man born blind. John also had that parenthetical note in verse 22 that the Jews have already at this point decided that anyone who confesses Jesus as the Christ is going to get thrown out of the synagogue. That's why the parents have avoided the question, but now the man is going to be put back on trial and he's not going to be able to avoid the question. Any more introductory comments before we jump into our text for today? No, I think that's good. All right. So we're picking up now at verse 24 of John chapter 9. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he is, where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And that takes us through verse 34 of the text. I will pause there. Pastor Heidi, the way this text begins, this is now again the second time that the Jews, the Pharisees, are examining the man who had been born blind, now healed. They say to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. That phrase, give glory to God, that they use to start, what does that mean? Why do they start that way? Give glory to God is a kind of oath that they're trying to put upon him, and it basically means confess the truth, like speak the truth right now. And the the clearest parallel that we have to this is actually in Joshua 7, where Joshua is talking to Achan and says, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So it's basically just a way of saying, okay, we want the truth. We, and we know they say that this man is a sinner. So tell us, tell us the real story is what they're saying here. And they, they even give him the right answer that they want, at least when they say, we know this man is a sinner. That is their conception of giving glory to God. So it's a, a way of inviting him to testify under oath, essentially. Mm-hmm. It strikes me in this context as a bit ironic, though. And again, I, I understand it's, it's primarily just a way of speaking, but I see a little bit of irony there, give glory to God. The way they think God will be glorified in this case is that they would invite this man to confess that Jesus is a sinner, when in fact the exact opposite is the case. What what they're doing in this examination of this man is not giving glory to God at all. And if this man were to follow in the way they want him to go, that would not be to give God glory at all. Again, I, I know it's just pretty much an invitation to, to be under oath, but there I, I see a little bit of irony there. Sure. I mean, we see this happening again and again, and we'll see it most prominently, of course, in the trials of Jesus themselves, because when they bring forth false witnesses in order to testify against him, even though their testimony cannot agree, they think that they are serving God by doing so. They think that they are 
by condemning Jesus doing the right thing and doing a God-pleasing thing, when in fact they are rejecting God himself in the process. Yeah, so I think what we see here is a, a small picture of the, the, the greater problem, which will finally come to its full fruition in the, the trial and the passion of Jesus itself. Well, and, and even thinking through the way John writes of the life of Jesus and the idea of what does it mean for Jesus to be glorified or for God to be glorified through Jesus, it, it is ultimately in his rejection, in his crucifixion, and, in the, and then in his resurrection. So if there's maybe an even an, another irony on top of that is that by their rejection of Jesus, God actually will be glorified through the the death and resurrection of His Son. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, and like like um, Caiaphas speaking the the truth because he was high priest that year, saying that you know it's better for one man to die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. I mean, yes, they are unwittingly testifying to the truth through what it is that that they're doing, even as they reject Him uh, in the in the process. So the Pharisees, again, have called this man for the second time, and you can see, I think, from their initial statement, they pretty well have their mind made up. Mm-hmm. They, they know the answer that they want to hear, and they, for their part, are going to say to this man, here's your chance to, to be on the, quote, right side of history along with us. The way that, that you do that is by saying that Jesus is a sinner. For his part, though, he answers, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Talk about his initial response to the Pharisees. Right. His initial response is, okay, I don't really know what you, you know, I don't know if I can agree with you or not, but ultimately that doesn't, that doesn't matter because, well, there's the miracle itself. So he points to what Jesus has done as an evidence of, well, something, there's something more about this man. Because, I mean, as he goes on later to say, you know, no one's ever heard of anyone opening the, the eyes of a man born, born blind. You know, this is something unprecedented in history, a complete miracle. You can't deny it because I can obviously see right now. And so whatever we're going to say about him, we have to take this into consideration. You know, I was blind, now I see. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. He... he sticks with the evidence that he knows in its most basic sense, which is the fact that he couldn't see before and now he can. And he wants to draw conclusions about Jesus based on that evidence. And I I think you already start to see here in his answer that he doesn't buy the Pharisees' explanation. He doesn't see them taking that evidence into account. And so he, he brings it up again. Look, I'm not sure about whether or not he's a sinner, but Here's the evidence that I think is most important. I was blind, now I see, which is is certainly true physically, and mm-hmm. I think that's how he means it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, are we seeing this man's eyes being opened again, not only physically, but spiritually, even in the midst of this conversation? Yes, but I will say that at this point, he does not yet fully see spiritually because Jesus has to come to him and basically tell him who he is. Right. That point, he will 100% see. His eyes will be wide open. But at this point, I think, yes, his eyes, his spiritual eyes in that sense are starting to open because he's holding on to what God has actually done and not really wondering, you know, is this, you know, all the, the technicalities of it. He says, I know the truth here. And the truth is, I was blind. Now I see. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Now, it's hard to to hear that phrase without thinking about the hymn Amazing Grace. It's a very commonly sung hymn in many Christian churches in the United States. And mm-hmm. so it's hard to to listen to these words without thinking about that. How to, not that we're going to comment on the hymn necessarily, but but what does that phrase mean when we usually use it as Christians about being blind but now I see? Well, we almost always use it in the spiritual sense, right? Because that's what the hymn is talking about. You know, once I was blind, now I see. I mean, it it is talking about coming to faith. So yes, now this man is talking about his physical sight at this point, but it's such an apt metaphor uh, for spiritual blindness. In fact, Jesus will even make that metaphor at the very end of this reading uh, that it's, I mean, why wouldn't you want to borrow it? It's so, it's, it's kind of got its poetic, it's poetic in itself. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. And and the the wonderful point that the hymn makes is that that being blind but now seeing is due completely to the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's clearly this man who was born blind didn't somehow make himself see and he didn't earn sight. This was completely a gift. It came to him from the outside. This again this use of this image of being blind but now seeing is a great example of the grace of God for us sinners. Exactly. Well, and and the hymn writer too, uh, Newton, if I remember correctly, uh, yeah. he was using it for his own experience in life, you know, because of a very troubled uh, first part of his life and then a very dramatic conversion. And so it was, it was something that I think he just naturally latches onto when he's talking about the nature of grace and the difference that it made in his life. So... I think I I absolutely think it's it's something worth cherishing, worth holding on to, and even talking this way about being spiritually blind but now seeing through the grace of God. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, again, we'll have more opportunity to talk about this metaphor as the text continues, because as you said, Jesus is going to use it as he teaches later in this text when he does show up again. Because again, he's not here at this point. This is completely the Pharisees talking to the man who was healed about Jesus and what happened. It's all their investigation. So the man is sticking with what has happened to him. That's the evidence he wants to take into account. So the the Pharisees come back with more questions, and the man just seems not to understand what's going on because it it just doesn't it doesn't seem to make sense to him. Talk about you know their their continued investigation and how the man responds. Right. So I think I think what they're trying to do is again they're trying to to load up. You know, they want a certain answer. They're looking for something specific. And if nothing else, they're going to try to trip the man up. You know, they're, they're trying to do everything that they can to say, aha, you know, we've got him now. This is how we can prove that he's a sinner and that he didn't actually do this or that he's not from God or whatever it may be. And so that's why they're trying to be very insistent on even repeating similar questions. And yet the man at result of that becomes kind of indignant. He says, well, I'm not going to repeat myself. Do you want to hear it again? Or do you really, do you, why do we need to go through this again? It's simple. Right. Um, do you want to become his disciples? Is that why you're asking? So he's already kind of turning it around on them and becoming a little bit, I don't want to say snippy, but you know, he's, he's putting a point to it now. You know, you, mm. you've already heard this, you know what happened. So why are you still asking? Hmm. Yeah, the the man does seem to either either he's 
just incredibly innocent and doesn't realize the situation that he's getting himself into mm-hmm. or or he does seem to be pushing back a little bit and recognizing their ulterior motives in all of this as as this conversation continues and he does become bolder as as the investigation goes on you know do you also want to become his disciples they revile him at that point i i think one of the things as you watch this conversation unfold you start to see the irrationality of unbelief and the way that unbelief wants to not believe, even when all of the evidence points the other direction. And the man, I think, is again, as the conversation is going on, he sort of points that out to the Pharisees. Look, I've told you everything. This is the evidence. Like, What's the holdup here? And the holdup is unbelief and the hardness of heart. Right. Well, and the thing about unbelief, too, is that no matter what is presented to it, it is going to refuse to believe because the problem is not a lack of information. You know, you can have all the information that you need, as the Pharisees certainly do. In fact, they've seen, you know, this this miracle happen and and yet not believe because the problem is still the heart of man. You know, they are refusing to turn to God. And because they have not been crushed, because they have not been humbled, uh, there is no repentance. So you could, you could perform a thousand miracles in front of them, and they would come up with an excuse for every single one, because they refuse to turn to God and to believe in him so that they would be saved. Hmm. You know, I, I know, as you said, this man is not all the way there yet. His eyes have not been opened fully as to who Jesus is, though that is coming later in the text. Mm-hmm. And so I, I hesitate to, to do too much with using this conversation as an example. At the same time, you know, just seeing the blatant unbelief of these Pharisees and the way this man responds, not by trying to answer their question questions very winsomely or, you know, giving a very kind explanation yet again, but really, you know, pushing back against them, there's maybe something to that for us as Christians. I'm not saying that we should be you know, unkind to people or, or just out and out jerks. At the same time, when there are continued questions and questions and questions that are coming from out and out unbelief, there is a time and place to say, you know what? You don't believe. I've answered. You need to just listen. I mean, you know, like, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, we we have become very timid in this day and age about answering questions or even about just standing up for Christian truth in general. We always seem to approach it from this very apologetic kind of position. Like, I need to say sorry that I'm I'm bringing this up at all, you know, or that I'm somehow being you know aggressive or something if I if I present the truth of God. Or even if I just speak the truth of the nature of man, if I say you are a sinner, you know, oh, you know, you can't say that. That's not very winsome. Well, it's it's how the Bible talks. And we should not be afraid of talking like the Bible talks. That That's generally good advice, I think. If, if the scriptures give it to us as the word of God, then we should hold to the word of God and speak the word of God. And again, I, I, not to use him as a as an out and out example, because it, it does, you know, you can see that he has some confusion still at this point, but just the way that he does deal with their unbelief mm-hmm. in, in sticking to that simple truth. And maybe that's, you know, 
beyond any snarkiness that he may be exuding here or any sort of sarcasm or, or just wonderment on his part, just the way that he sticks with what he knows has happened, what God has actually done for him, I, I think is, is very helpful. You know, when someone comes in and denies the resurrection and gives you X, Y, and Z reasons why it couldn't have happened, you know, one, one acceptable way of responding is like, look, he rose from the dead. What are you going to do with it? You know that I mean, and just putting it out there—that's mm-hmm. the truth. You either believe it or you don't, and that's that. And as you said, to not be apologetic for the truth of Christianity in the sense that we apologize and say sorry for it, but rather to be apologetic in the sense of you know uphold it and defend it as the truth and let that truth stand for what it is. Proclaim it. I mean, just yeah. just state it. I mean, that's I think. We need to regain that confidence, which our forefathers had in just stating the truth. You know, whether you believe this or not, that's on you, but this is what the truth is. And the truth is, is that Jesus, you know, is risen. And for everyone who calls on his name, there is salvation. Now, what you're going to do with that is not my problem in that sense, if you know what I mean. Right. Well, right. And that's, again, <laughs> we're not we're not saying this in, in some sort of mean-spirited way, but we know what the truth is. Jesus Christ is the truth, and that truth stands. And so, you know, I mean, just, again, thinking through the, the Gospel of John, previously, all the way back in chapter one, just that simple invitation, hey, here's the truth, come and see. What good can come from Nazareth? Well, come and see, you know, and, and that's, I think, what's refreshing about this man is that in his simplicity and again his his eyes being opened he does stick with that just plain truth and he he lets that truth stand without those you know outside biases that are trying to influence him he just wants to to stick with what he knows and what he knows is i was blind now i see let's take that as evidence into into account and their continued questions for more evidence he just is he doesn't have time for that it's not the point He's got the evidence he needs, and yeah, this this question: Do you want to become his disciples? Obviously, they they take it as revile or as an opportunity to revile, but I mean, they should want to become his disciples, even though they don't. Yeah, even though they so, don't, and that's the problem. That's here, right. So yeah, that's the problem. So this investigation is going to continue, and then Jesus is going to come back into the picture. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi this morning about John chapter 9. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe. Become a patron. 
and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 21st. We're studying John chapter 9, verses 24 to 41 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we got up to the interaction between this man and the Pharisees. The man has said, perhaps mockingly a little bit, do you also want to become his disciples? And they take this as opportunity to revile the man. They say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Is is that actually true, that they are disciples of Moses? Um, no. And I, <laughs> basically... They have come to believe that they are disciples of Moses. But as Jesus points out repeatedly in the Gospels, what they're really disciples of is the traditions of men. That all of these other things that have been added on top of Moses, and they think that by keeping those and by keeping all of their particular rules, that they are thereby doing what Moses told them to do. Where in reality, as Jesus will repoint, uh, repeatedly point out, they're doing nothing of the sort because, you know, God said this and yet you say this, or God said this and then, you know, this happens sort of thing. But I think this is also a little bit ironic because if you think about Israel in the time of Moses, they were doing the same thing to Moses. They were rejecting him. They were fighting with him. They were bickering with him. You just brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. Uh, you're trying to starve us. We want to go back to Egypt. And now, you know, thousands of years later, they're saying, oh, we always followed Moses. Oh, okay. Sure, guys. Whatever you want to say. Well, and, and Jesus has also pointed out on more than one occasion in the Gospel of John that if they really listened to Moses, they would be listening to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, that's, again, the, the irony of this statement is, is they say, hey, you're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. And again, I know that at this point, the man's eyes are not fully opened, but the the fact that he is going to be a disciple of Jesus means that he's actually going to be the one who's really listened to Moses, whereas they, the Pharisees, by not becoming disciples of Jesus, in fact, can't be disciples of Moses. Because if you'd listened to Moses, you would have become one of Jesus' disciples. And again, that that irony in this statement is just, especially with the way Jesus has been talking in John, there's so much irony there. Right. Right. If they were, if they were actually had their eyes open, they would realize the truth here, but because they are blind and this, the blind man is the one who sees, yeah, you get this ironic situation where things are flipped completely around. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they say, and again, the irony just builds, we know that God has spoken to Moses, which is true. I mean, that is true. They did know that God had spoken to Moses, but for this man, for Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. Again, you kind of want to smack your head a little bit here because like, have you guys not been listening to what Jesus has been saying? He's been telling you all along where he comes from. He comes from his father. And if you would listen to Jesus, you'd know the father, you'd know where he's come from, and you'd actually be believing in Moses. Again, it's almost like all of the the conversations that Jesus has had with the Pharisees up to this point, they're wrapped up into this one statement and they show they haven't been listening or believing at all. Well, of course. I mean, they, they do not believe they've rejected Jesus already. And it doesn't matter what he does, they're not going to believe because of their hardness of heart. Um, I also do think that with the uh, that aside there, we don't know where he comes from. I mean, that that is, a, I think, a fairly loaded statement. I think they're implying that Jesus is illegitimate and for that yeah. reason is a sinner in that 
you know? So basically like, yeah, of course you're his disciple because you're a sinner too. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, I think that's a really good point. We, we, we covered that a little bit in chapter eight, where in the, the conversation Jesus has with the Jews there, they make the, they say, we were not born of sexual immorality and, and talked about it there that they're probably hinting at what they believe is Jesus illegitimate birth. Probably the same thing going on here. I think that's a, that's a good catch. So at this point, though, this is where the man really just, I don't know if he, he, he really starts to show his hand and, and really comes down on one side here. So take us into what the man answers here, which is going to earn him getting kicked out of the synagogue. Take us into 30 to, to 33. Yeah. So at this point, this, this man basically becomes wiser than his teachers. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to use the, the words of the psalm. And the sense that he recognizes at least far more than they do. Again, he's not 100% there yet because he'll be there in the next paragraph. But he at least it can see more than they can. And for that reason, he takes this position of speaking in this kind of teaching way, in this kind of authoritative way, and pointing out some basic truths. And because of these basic truths... Um, he says, this at least shows that he's not who you say that he is. I don't know what he is a hundred percent yet, basically. And he'll know that in the next paragraph, but he can't be what you say, because if nothing else, he opened my eyes and we know God doesn't listen to sinners. I mean, you can think of Psalms that say some, you know, to something to that effect. I'm thinking of Psalm five, I think is one of them, you know, that eyes too pure to, to view evil, that sort of thing. And then he basically says, if anyone actually does what God wants, God listens to him. And obviously this had to happen. This had to come from God because who in, who has ever heard of this happening naturally, right? Mm-hmm. Who has ever heard of something like this happening at any other point in history In all of the history of Israel, when is something like this happening? If this wasn't from God, I don't know what is. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. So, and, and with the the way that he speaks, you know that God doesn't listen to sinners, and this sign means that he has to come from God. The way that this is is going, you're saying we should we should understand that as the correct position rather than I mean, because like when I when I read those, I'm like, well, you know, there are there are moments where those who are connected with the devil and and wickedness do certain outward signs, like sure. the you know the musicians and the magicians in Pharaoh's court as one example, but he's not like, that's not the theological debate that's going on here. It seems right. Right. Yeah. He's, he's basically just saying, if this man were a sinner, he would not have been able to open my eyes. That's the, that's the basic kernel of the argument that he's making here. The fact that I can now see shows that he's not who you say he is. And that is a sinner. Hmm. So, and I guess the reason that I, I bring up the matter of like Pharaoh's magicians is that when we think about signs, there are times where where signs might deceive, you know. And but that's we're in connection with Jesus here. I guess what I what I want to be careful with is taking the way that this man speaks, and then say applying it to certain so called signs that happen today. When you think about, does that make sense? Like there, mm. I mean, there are false preachers out there. That, that would use, quote, signs for their own gain. And we want to be careful so that we don't take this man's words out of context to support that kind of 
false sign. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I mean, because like, like Revelation says, you know, the angels will perform, you know, false signs or, I mean, we see examples of Satan working miracles. You know, he can do impressive things, but Jesus doesn't do things to be impressive. And I think that's the, the key here, because if Jesus were doing this simply to be impressive, he would have become the bread king of John 6. Right. Right. Whereas a lot of these miracles or so-called miracles that are done today are meant to be just impressive. Like, see, I can do this or God gave me this power or whatever it is. And then they immediately start to say things contrary to the scriptures themselves. Hmm. You know, in this case, what I think this, all this man is doing is saying, you know, this is just clear evidence that this man, like you said, if nothing else, he isn't who you say he is. And he, and this man won't know until Jesus talks to him who he actually is. So we have to keep yeah. that in mind too. Right. And I think that's, that's a helpful point to make is that at, at this point, this man doesn't know fully who Jesus is. He hasn't had his eyes spiritually opened in the fullest sense. And that's only going to happen when Jesus talks to him later. And so that, that importance of, you know, hearing the word of Christ is going to be brought forward, especially as we get to the, the end of this text, which is coming. Now, this man, again, has kind of put all his cards on the table here, and he's, he's like, you wanted to examine me? Here you go. Here's what I think, and I can't believe you don't think this is sort of the, the position I, it se he seems to be taking. Mm -hmm. And they, they get it, right? They say, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. Talk about that, that statement, you were born in utter sin. Why do they say that? Well, that's alluding back to the first part of this chapter where the man born blind, the assumption is, is that because he's blind, his parents must have sinned somehow. And for that reason, this man was born in sin. And the fact that he's permanently blind, or at least was permanently blind, uh, is, is, is showing that it is an utter sin. That's not just a minor defect. You know, they really did something bad. They really screwed up somehow. And now your kid is born blind. And for that reason, they consider him to be uh, in no position whatsoever to teach them, you know, because we are not blind. You know, we can see we are not, you know, imperfect in that sense. We don't have any obvious blemishes about us. And for that reason, you have no right to speak to us in this way. I mean, that's basically what they're trying to say, right? Yeah. So and and. To connect that to what you were saying earlier about when they say, we don't know where this man comes from, then this man being born in utter sin, they're going ahead and just making that connection between Jesus and this man. man. Here, are, here are two people who were born in sin. We're going to lump them together, and we want nothing to do with them. And so they they cast him out. What's the, the significance of casting him out of the synagogue? This was the threat we heard previously. Now they carry it out. Why is that a significant move? Well, it's significant because now he has been excluded from the worship of Israel. And so for that reason, he's effectively, at least in the Pharisees' mind, uh, barred from God. Like, he has been thrown out. He is essentially now a Gentile. Uh, he's part of the nations. He's totally unclean. He cannot approach God, at least in the way that the Pharisees think. And yet that's also ironic because God's about to approach him. 
That's right. That's right. So, I mean, this is where, at least from from their perspective, back with where we started this conversation in verse 24, if if they, or if he refused to give the answer they wanted, this is where it was always going to go. Right. He didn't give the glory to God in the way that they wanted him to. And so now he, I mean, he kind of has to be cast out, I suppose, if he's going to oppose this way of thinking it, in their mind. And again, I know it's wrong, but in their mind, He's done this to himself, and so right. it. I mean, well, I, I guess I mean on the one hand, it almost comes off a little bit prideful and arrogant, but on the other hand, it's not entirely out of the way their theology would have them act either. Right, right. I mean, to have a man, I mean, to act like this, say in in any other circumstance, I mean, the, yeah, that would be something where they are doing something that would exclude them from the worship of Israel. He has essentially made himself unclean by what they believe to be heresy, right? Mm. To believe that this man is, in fact, who he says he is. Uh, but in reality, like I said, to be cast out of the synagogue in this place is actually a good thing uh, because he is coming out of the, the unbelieving body, those who reject him, and being made part of a new body, those who, are, you know, who will become the church. So yeah, to be cast out in this, in this case is actually a good thing. So, as you said, he has been cast out of the synagogue. They believe cast out of any connection to God, and yet the irony is that God is now going to come to him. Jesus has been absent from the scene for quite some time, but he shows back up. We pick up the text again in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. That's the rest of our text for today. That takes us through John chapter 9, verse 41. So, Pastor Heidi, talk about Jesus here. He goes and finds the man that's been cast out when he's heard the news, and he asks the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? What He he calls himself the Son of Man here. Talk about the title that Jesus gives. Yeah, the, the title of the Son of Man is important, uh, derived from, what is it, Daniel chapter 7? Is that right? I think so, yeah. Um, basically talking about Jesus as the, the coming one, as the, the Son of, you know, the Son of the Most High, the one who is going to be given a kingdom, that sort of thing. So this is a, a very lofty title for him to take. And when and he's referring to himself, of course, and he's saying, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you acknowledge him to be the Son of Man? Do you see him for who he is? Right. So in other words, he wants to make sure that this man has a very clear idea of what it is he's just been saying. And I guess in some sense, you could say Jesus has come to open his eyes the rest of the way. Right. I think that's exactly what happens, especially as Jesus talks about, you know, the eyes being opened at the end of this text. So do you believe in the son of man? The man, for his part, you know, he doesn't, I guess... Maybe he doesn't have the evidence yet. You know, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's he's 
talked to to G or he's seen Jesus open his eyes. That's the evidence he's been hanging on to. Now that he's presented with this son of man, he says, well, tell me more about him that I can believe in him. Jesus answers, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. So there, again, I think the choice of words is pretty, pretty clear. You have seen him. Here's the moment that Jesus opens his eyes spiritually fully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also interesting that you'll notice the miracle in itself of the opening the, the eyes of the blind man only brought him so far, right? It only brought him to a point to recognize that he knew what the Jews were saying about Jesus wasn't true, but it doesn't get him the whole way. What gets him the rest of the way is the clear words which Jesus speaks to him. You know, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. When Jesus proclaims that word, when Jesus preaches in that sense to him and shows him who the Son of Man actually is, at that point, he then says, Lord, I believe. Mm-hmm. And the faith, faith is completed in that moment. He has been brought the rest of the way. His eyes have been fully opened. So I, I don't know. I guess I think there's something to be said there for uh, the nature of you know, preaching in this, too. You know, we don't want to be just looking for miracles as if that's what's really going to convince people. No, it's it's hearing that clear word from Jesus that, you know, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you that finally gives this man full, true faith. So if, if Jesus doesn't go and find this man after he's been cast out and preached him in this way, mm-hmm. then the man is is likely to end up like the Jews in John chapter six, who look at Jesus as a bread King, like, Hey, give us more food to eat. So our bellies are full. Yeah. That's all that this man can conceive of Jesus until Jesus comes and says, I'm the son of man speaking to you. And then that preaching, you know, and connected to the fullness of that preaching in the word of God in the old Testament, that gives him this gift of faith so that he actually now worships Jesus truly. Yeah. I mean, Paul says faith comes by hearing. Right. And hearing through the word of Christ, it, it's, it's all there. I mean, we don't want to discount that act of actually preaching the word to him so that he hears clearly who Jesus is. Not just his yeah. eyes save him in that sense, but also his ears. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The, the ears which hear the word of Christ and then the Holy Spirit works faith in this man. He says, Lord, I believe he worships. So he, and, and all of it, that, and everything that comes with that, you know, I mean, again, what we were saying earlier about some of the things that have a bit of irony in the conversation before, now that he truly sees Jesus and he is his disciple and he does truly get Moses and everything that was written. And now that he's seen the son, he sees the father. I mean, all of this is now his because he is one of Christ's own. He, I mean, he has been made a child of God. Those he came to his own, they didn't receive him, but to those who did receive him, here here is one of those as John mentioned already in the beginning. Here's an example in John chapter 9. Yeah. And he falls down and worships him. I mean yeah. to 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 see the truth and then to give to give real glory to God for it. There. I'll tie it mm-hmm. back to the beginning. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So here here is truly God being glorified when the man doesn't confess Jesus as a sinner, but rather confesses Jesus as the son of man and worships him accordingly. Now, Jesus continues in in verse 39, he, he says, and this is where we find out that the audience is at least a little bit bigger. There's some people who are 
watching this interaction, overhearing this interaction with Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 39, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What is Jesus talking about there? Well, this is one of those sayings of Jesus uh, throughout other gospels too, where he basically says, you know, he's come to divide, you know, he brings a sword into the world to, to set a, a man against his a father and, you know, mother against daughter and that sort of thing that, you know, Jesus comes in order to, I guess you could say, to sift out those who are his, uh, to, to show the, the hearts of many, to reveal the hearts of many, to use the, the language of, of Luke there. You know, this is, this judgment which he is bringing into the world is to to bring down the high and to bring up the low. It's to I mean, think of all the different ways that he talks about this. You could you could go on and on. But the, the point being that those who do not see, in other words, those who are spiritually looking for something, so to speak, they will see. But those who think that they can see uh, will become blind. Uh, and the, they think they can see because they believe themselves to be followers of Moses, I mean, whatever language you ought to be. This is the, the first becoming last, the last becoming first. I mean, there's just so many ways that he says something like this in the Gospels. It's almost hard to come up with, you know, specific examples. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. So this is, I mean, it fits in with those same statements of Jesus as we see elsewhere. And some of the Pharisees are overhearing this. And they they say to Jesus, like, well, are we blind then, Jesus? And Jesus responds, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains, what is Jesus saying there? Yeah, you ever you ever think you agree with the disciples sometimes and be like, ah, oh, now you're speaking plainly, right? <laughs> um, no, this is what Jesus is saying is that if you were truly blind, you know, if you recognized your blindness, then you would have no guilt because you would come to truly see, you know, who I am and you would come to me in true faith. But because you insist that you can see that you are righteous, that you're, there's nothing wrong with you, uh, your guilt remains. I mean, that's what Jesus means, right? Hmm. Yeah, okay. So that's, that's what Jesus means. And it, it, is, it is nice when, like you said, sometimes I, I find myself, myself in the shoes of the disciples much more often than I would like to admit. It, you know. <laughs> but that's okay. It's okay to find myself in the shoes of the disciples. That's not the worst place to be. Right. <laughs> Oh, okay. So if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. And just one thing that I think it's worth pointing out, I know that's where our text ends today, mm -hmm. but we should keep this in mind as we start to look at chapter 10 next, that Jesus is still talking from the end of nine into chapter 10. So we want to keep that in mind and notice some of the connections as we look at this next text tomorrow. With, with this matter, you know, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains, I, I hear a little bit of an echo of the way St. John writes in his first letter, or maybe he was influenced by this. He talks about the importance of confessing sin, mm -hmm. and those who say they have no sin, they deceive themselves. But when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, this, this idea... And what Jesus says in verse 39, I mean, it's, it's reformulated lots of different ways, but we see it all throughout the New Testament. But, the, but yeah, bringing up 1 John is a great point because 
if we are blind, if we recognize that we are blind, then we can actually find the forgiveness of God because we say, Lord, we are blind, help us to see. But if we insist that we can see that we have no sin, then the sin remains, right? That, that then there is no forgiveness because we're convinced that we don't need it. Right. Because it is only through that amazing grace that this miraculous conversion happens. It is only through the grace of God that those who are blind now see. And if we think that we can do it on our own, well, then the one who has come to save sinners, he doesn't have anything for us because that's that's who he's come for, is sinners, those who are blind, who cannot see. If we think we can see on our own, we have no use for that grace that he has come to give because it is only by that amazing grace that we are saved. Pastor Heidi, we got about two minutes here on the morning. We've come through the end of John chapter nine. Help us to wrap things up. Give us the, the good news that we see through what Jesus has done for this blind man. Yeah. Well, I mean, we see in this moment the great power of Jesus, but also the great mercy of Jesus in bringing this man not only to physically see, but also through physically seeing, he comes to spiritually see. And, you know, we should continue to recognize that, you know, it is only because of that same grace and mercy that Jesus has shown to us by giving himself for us that we come to see at all. So, I mean, the fact that we are studying this word, the fact that we are considering what Jesus has to say, the fact that we believe what he has to say is only because he has first opened our eyes. And so for that reason, I think we need to continually give thanks to him and to glorify him, to give true glory to him for all that he has done for us in bringing us to himself. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 9, verses 24 to 41. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, we would love to hear from you. You can send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org, or you can go to your favorite app store. You can download the KFUO app, and you will find an option there to send a message to us. It's called the Open Mic feature. We'd love to hear from you either way. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.